Hello, following on the success of our last podcast, I'm here to talk to Alex Shea, the co-founder of Vantage Power. I've known Alex for about five years now and been on his whole journey so far from helping raise the first funding, joining the board soon after that as an observer and then an investor director and um, taking it forward to some exciting times. Alex. Yes, thanks, Peter. It's great to be here. I was born in 1987. It's my 30th birthday in a couple of months' time. And I uh, was always really interested in engineering and science and technology from a very young age. Um, I then got very interested in geography, of all things, due to a string of quite inspiring teachers at school. And by the end of school, I was really concerned about pollution, climate change and resource scarcity as, as major topics affecting um, our society and planet. And it was towards the end of university when I wanted to merge those two passions with business. I ended up starting a project to design and build the world's longest range electric car, which was essentially my first successful venture, even though it was not for profit. And that was by yourself or with a, with a group of people? Uh, yes, I, was, uh, I started it by myself and then I built up a team of about 10 recently graduated engineers from Imperial College London. We raised about £700,000 of corporate sponsorship and designed what was at the time uh, the longest range electric car in the world. And successfully drove it from North America to South America. Indeed, yeah. So uh, what better road to test it on than the longest road in the world, which is the Pan American Highway, 26,500 kilometres long from the top of Alaska to the bottom of Argentina. And no electric car had ever done it uh, before then. And I don't think one's done it since. And I think there's something on DVD, isn't there? There is indeed, yes. So the BBC made an eight-part documentary series of uh, our project. We had a a film crew with us all the way, and that aired in 2011 and is now available on iTunes and DVD. But buy it on iTunes, because if you buy it on DVD, I have to send you a DVD in the post. (laughs) Yes. Now, of course, during that process, you thought you'd be entrepreneurial, and you could have chosen electric racing cars, couldn't you? Yeah, so um, finishing off that project, my co-founder Toby and I wanted to start a business. We just didn't know what. And it could easily have been electric cars. I say easily, but actually it would have been very difficult because the general automotive industry is immensely difficult for um, two young guys with no money to get involved in. So we spent a lot of time trying to find our niche in in an area which excited us. And that was hybrid and electric vehicles and the niche ended up being the bus industry. Yes, so you decided on hybrid electric vehicles. What was the what what did you think about getting involved with? We had to find an area where if we implemented hybrid uh, and electric technology there would be a strong commercial proposition. And back then and probably even now there's not a strong commercial argument for buying a much more expensive electric car because you're not going to get the savings through fuel reduction. If you look at the industries which use a lot of fuel um, that need some sort of hybridization to reduce fuel consumption, the bus industry fits the bill. So big heavy vehicles operating up to 24 hours a day in heavy stop-start fuel-heavy environments in the city. And we found that if a hybrid system could be installed into existing buses to reduce fuel consumption, you you could pay for itself and essentially make the transition towards cleaner vehicle technology much more affordable. You did something rather interesting there, then, didn't you? you? You actually got somebody in the industry involved quite early on. That's right, yeah. So um, when we came up with the idea, we ended up pitching it to uh, the UK's largest bus dealer, which is a company called Ensign Bus. Um, and they were one of our first supporters. Uh, they gave us a double-decker bus to do all our initial prototyping on and have supported us since. Yes, and clearly this was going to take some time to get to market and therefore you'd need funding to do the development work. 
Can you describe the process of approaching angels or angel groups? So my story, I think, was a bit fortuitous. Uh, so once uh, Toby and I had settled on the, the business idea, we coincidentally had a follow-up interview by the BBC about a year after having completed our car journey. And the interviewer said, so what are you up to now? And rather than sort of keeping our idea secret, we decided, well, let's just talk about it on international radio and see what happens. And very uh, fortunately, a guy called Richard uh, was uh, meant to be skiing with his family. He'd broken his arm, so he was sitting uh, in his ski chalet instead listening to the radio. And he, he heard us talk about our idea and he got in contact. Richard turned out to be an investor and became our first angel investor. Uh, and there, Richard then introduced us to two people, Peter being one of them. And uh, from that moment onwards, we were introduced to a whole range of uh, new business angels that helped form our first seed round. Yeah, and Richard, I'd, I'd known actually because he'd been introduced by somebody else. And he lives in Krakow, doesn't he, in Poland? He does, yes. Yeah. So he actually flew over for our first meeting and we met in a restaurant uh, in St. James in London. And he's been an investor ever since. And so I, I took vantage power to the Cambridge Angels and other groups. You went on an accelerator in Cambridge, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, we did, yeah. And Which that... was actually quite a transformative experience. So we, we, we had real, no real understanding as how to approach a business model per se, um, how to communicate our concept as well as we could. And that two-day accelerator really helped us fine-tune our concept. And find some investors. Of and find well. some investors, yeah. yeah. And we got some really great inv investors on board as a result. I think that's possibly where you decided you were interested as well. Well, I think I'd seen you before that. I think I came down to see you in your in your mother's house, yeah. and <laughs> feeling where the car, the racing green car, was in the basement or in the garage, wasn't that's it? That's right, yeah. yeah. And so I, then, then from that, I introduced you to Nathan and uh, the QI3. So that round, what, what did you, you had a lot to learn, I suspect, from the point of initially us pledging some money and closing. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so it's really, really exciting when you're on that journey first. You, you talk to investors who are generally quite an inspiring bunch. They've all done lots of different businesses and they're very well educated and lots of great stories. So you, you feel like you're in very good company and then you start negotiating and you start getting into legals. And at least, at least for us, particularly with hindsight, we were woefully ill-prepared for, for such a negotiation. I think we came out of it all right in the end, but we'd never seen a proper shareholders agreement before. We didn't know what an investment agreement before. We didn't know what preemption rights were. We were learning a lot as we went along, which is an okay way of doing it, but not necessarily when you're negotiating for things that could have very substantial impacts on your business later and, on. And, and who were you getting advice from? The lawyer, possibly the internet, other entrepreneurs, the our, angels? Our advice initially came from using a bit of common sense, doing a lot of research on the internet and... Um, unfortunately a lawyer that we later decided was not very fit for purpose and we had quite a few errors in that documentation that cost a lot of time and money at the later point to get rectified so my my first piece of advice from that piece of hindsight was invest in decent lawyers uh, when you're starting up a business because they are definitely worth their weight in gold uh, when it comes to problems later down the line and you do need to dust off those agreements and, and have a look at what they said the other thing that would have been very helpful would be some sort of guide as to what the process actually entails. So you make a pitch, then you might have another meeting, you might pitch to some other people. And do you chase up? Does the investor chase up? 
do you get heads of terms in place? Do you get an NDA in place? Some investors are okay with NDAs, some aren't. Uh, some head, in, in our first case, actually, we issued the first heads of terms to a first group of investors and then had another heads of terms issued to us by another set of investors. And it was all a little bit, little bit of a mess. Had there been a very sort of clear, generic process that we could have followed, possibly tweaking where necessary, I think that would have been very helpful. Good. I do remember that your business plan was excellent, that you put an awful lot of effort into understanding the market, understanding the route to market, understanding costs and everything. One of the best I've ever seen. I'm sure that helped with raising money from the group of investors. How many investors have we got now? We're approaching 50. 50. Uh, 50 shareholders. Yes, I think yeah. we'll, maybe at some point later, we'll talk about the uh, the, both the difficulties and, and the usefulness of a large shareholder base. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but let's talk about that. So you've raised some fund <clears throat> funding. We're now in the beginning of 2013. What mm -hmm. did you do with that funding? So the first thing that Toby and I did, so to set the scene, we were paying ourselves nothing. Uh, we were living in uh, my mum's house in Ealing, and we had no space to do any of our tech development. Obviously, we couldn't hire anybody because they, nobody would be prepared to work in our bedrooms. So um, the first thing we did is we went out and found a small property that we could lease, uh, which had a little office uh, space for five people and a little warehouse where we could get a bus in there and start doing our initial prototyping. And that is the first thing we did in parallel with getting the first bit of tech prototyped and developed and I would say then the third thing being uh, looking for people, it became immediately apparent uh, that two people in this industry are not going to get very far very quickly. And of course, from the angel viewpoint, you can't scale a business with just two people. You know, you would need to, and we would have put some pressure on you to start hiring soon. You'd raised a few hundred thousand pounds, I believe, quite a few hundred thousand. Therefore, yes. you had the money available, not just to spend on premises, but on people. So we've now got a prototype bus for early 2014. What's next? When was the next funding required? Uh, the next, well, actually, if we go back to 2013, we entered a couple of awards, uh, which the one in question was uh, the Lloyd's Best Enterprise Awards. And we were fortunate enough to win Best Enterprise for London and the Southeast. And that resulted in a very small article in the Sunday Telegraph this being March, April 2013. So actually only about three or four months since we closed our first proper funding round. And uh, unbeknown to us, there was a couple of guys sitting in Singapore who read that article and became very excited about the business and uh, came and visited us over in London along with some of their other uh, business partners. And they decided to invest around about £300,000, which convinced some of our existing investors to invest about £300,000. So uh, we actually had an unanticipated extra about £600,000 closed by September of 2013 uh, when we had never actually anticipated doing that. So that pushed uh, our funding requirement out to... Um, our, our next bit of funding came in at the beginning of 2015, so it lasted us about uh, 18 months. Plus grants, of course. You, the Innovate UK were very uh, pleased with what you were doing and offered grants and gave grants. Definitely. I'd say grants are an invaluable source of uh, money, uh, particularly the larger ones, because um, the difference in effort required to go for a large one and a small one is actually not that great, but the amount of money you get can be many hundreds of thousands. So we've had, uh, I think, around one £1.1 million worth of funding from various sources. Most have come from to innovate slash what used to be called TSB uh, funds and another one 
from what was the Department for Energy and Climate Change, but now is the Department of Base, Base Business, yes. Energy and Industrial Strategy, I think it is. Yeah. So, Alex, um, before we continue with the journey, can we just talk about the board? Who joined the board to begin with and how that board has developed and how that's helped you? Mm. So uh, you introduced us originally to a gentleman called Nat Billington uh, during the investment process. And he became our investor director. So nominally, he was representing the investors on the cap table. And uh, he was a director alongside Toby and I. And we also had uh, several board observers. Uh, you were one of them uh, to start off with. And we had a few others as well. And uh, it was the board stayed in that structure for about a year until unfortunately um, Nat became ill and, and had to retire from the board. Uh, and this is a, a really good example of why strength and depth within your investor base and having an engaged investor base is so important because then you were able to step in initially part-time and then ultimately full-time uh, to take over from Nat and uh, become our investor director. This is a really good example of us being able to continue our corporate governance, keep the board going and keep critically the advice and mentorship to the two founders going because I, I truly believe that's helped us navigate many of the pitfalls that early stage companies often face. It then also became quite apparent that we needed a chairman up until that point. It was a sort of ad hoc arrangement of mostly me chairing a board meeting, which is as a CEO, really not a good thing to do because you need to be held accountable at a board meeting, which you can't really do if you're also chairing it and selecting the themes for discussion and moving the conversation on as you would like. Um, so we needed a chairman that had gravitas, that could relate to the industry, but the bus industry, but wasn't necessarily in the industry, had an firm appreciation for the technology. And we went on a bit of a search and we wrote a job description and before long, we kind of realized that actually the job description uh, described uh, the CEO of one of our major investors, which is Marshall of Cambridge, uh, which is a massive engineering uh, business based in Cambridge. Uh, and the CEO of that company, Robert Marshall, really fulfilled every single one of these criteria. And so we approached him in uh, mid-2015 to see if he'd be interested in becoming our chairman. And uh, he, he very fortunately accepted. So at this point, we were now four directors a very strong team with very well supported by strong board observers as well. Um, and we stayed like that for the next two years until a couple of weeks ago when we had our fifth director join us, a gentleman called Dr. Till Becker, who's uh, previously CEO and president of various Daimler subsidiaries, uh, including uh, CEO and president of Daimler Turkey, Portugal and Northeast China. So really good corporate board member there to help us strategize for the future. But the board is there not just to assist you, but it's also to challenge you, isn't it? So there are times when you wouldn't necessarily agree with what the board was deciding to do. Definitely. I would say, I would actually say that I think the board could have challenged us more in the, in the past. Um, but um, one time where I think it was particularly effective in, in challenging the management team and getting us to change our mind was at the beginning of this year where... I was very keen on spinning out one of our software products into a separate business, getting it separately funded and allowing it to sort of take flight on its own. And there was quite a strong pushback by varying members of the board pointing to the fact that we didn't really have the management bandwidth to take on such an ambitious project. And I think with hindsight that was correct. It's probably something I wouldn't have necessarily seen or possibly would have 
optimistically ignored um, had I not had that input. And in fact, last night at half past ten, we had three board members and a board observer discussing exactly this. <laughs> yes. point. These are late. When you're an angel, you tend to get involved very late, and obviously entrepreneurs yeah. with some uh, long hours. Um, good, excellent. Um, funding rounds. So, how many funding rounds have happened so far? It depends how you characterise them, but I would say uh, we're probably on our fifth funding round. And the reason that you hesitated is because some of these are, are, are not been closed on a specific date, but have been over a period. Yes, uh, so they've been over a period, or they might be two that are very close together, and so essentially somebody else has piggybacked off a previous funding round, and it's not like you've specifically gone out for that money. Uh, case in point, that, that second round that we had in early 2013, which came as a result of a newspaper article, we, we didn't go through any of the normal funding round procedures that would be, typically be expected. We just closed our previous funding round. We were fine for cash. And this sort of was just tagged on to the last one, albeit a different valuation. Um, so I don't really consider those as two separate funding rounds. Right. And can you give an example of the sort of other money that's come in, particularly the Angel Co-Fund and some of the other high net worths? So the majority of our uh, shareholder base in terms of different shareholders are made up of business angels, but we have a number of non-business angels which have been very important. I've already mentioned Marshall of Cambridge, which is our largest single investor, uh, and largest shareholder aside from the two founders. And that has been very valuable, not just uh, because of Robert Marshall's involvement, but also on the many, many technical and commercial ways we've been able to get support from them. So uh, we've needed to do supplier due diligence, for example, and we got some help from, from one of their FDs. Uh, we were once looking at buying a company um, and we had some tremendous support there and we've had some great uh, engineering courses and lessons laid on by um, some of the very experienced personnel in that company. It's helped our team out immensely as well. Of course, we've had Ensign Bus, uh, which is our industry partner, and they're a pretty substantial shareholder as well. The Angel Co-Fund, which invests alongside angels but is a relatively silent investor, uh, brings a lot of cash but doesn't sit on the board per se, has a board representative. Um, and probably the last one I'd mention, or last couple I'd mentioned there, is some pretty big uh, influential angels that we have. Uh, John Winter is one that joined us about a year ago. He's ex-CEO of Barclays Corporate Bank and brings tremendous strategic and financial advice to the board where possibly that was an area we didn't have um, so much representation on and um, uh, Till Becker as well, which I previously mentioned. And the total amount raised is? If you include grant funding, we've raised about 7.4 million pounds to date. Okay. And uh, of course, in the end, one wants customers. Can you describe how the customer interaction has occurred, what that's resulted in? Yeah, so customer interaction, um, first of all, we're a B2B business. So introductions, personal relationships are probably of much greater importance than um, a B2C when you're, when you're really just trying to market to millions and millions of people. Um, so our first break came when we were able to demonstrate our first prototype to Transport for London, which is the, one of the biggest transit authorities in the world, of course, and controls the bus network within London. Uh, and they were very excited by the technology, very excited by the prospect of being able to upgrade existing buses to uh, the latest in hybrid technology. And they said that if we could find the customers, they would fund our initial trial. 
and we spent the next year or so pitching the concept and explaining the concept to customers. And this is another very big difference between a B2C business in that we have a high value proposition. So it's not a quick decision that's made by the customer. This is a multi-month, sometimes six months easily sales process where you educate the customer as to what you what it is. They can do due diligence on your team, understand the technology better. So we spent the course of 2015 doing that and we found three really great customer partners, launch partners uh, for our retrofit product, which is Go Ahead, uh, London United and Arriva, three of the largest uh, bus operators in the UK. And that was a, an incredibly educational learning experience dealing with multi-billion pound corporates and getting our first sales through that. Tremendous achievement, obviously just the beginning of the road, but a very, very important first step. And since then, we've morphed into selling our technology into a new bus manufacturer, uh, which has been uh, the sort of second phase of our three-phase master plan to ultimately become a technology provider to the heavy-duty diesel industry and help them reposition their product portfolio towards the low-diesel future. And in fact, this industry you're in is changing quite rapidly. Pressure from the EU, pressure from locally, pressure from politicians to improve our air. Mm. Can you talk through the speed of change and how that's affected business, the business and whether it had to pivot at all? Definitely. Legislation, we often think, moves quite slowly, but in this particular case, it's moved very, very rapidly and, and caught us off guard on one occasion, at least. So when we started out, developing the concept in 2011, talk was really about reducing CO2 emissions, so the, the greenhouse gas that influences climate change. And um, that was the basis behind developing a hybrid system that reduced fuel consumption, which would reduce CO2. And also in reducing fuel consumption, we would give a saving to the operator that could pay for the system. And then the, within the next couple of years after that, the industry changed very much towards uh, reducing emissions of nitrogen dioxide primarily as the main pollutant that's uh, actually killing people. As we speak, about forty to 50,000 people in the UK per year are dying prematurely due to, tail, uh, due to air quality issues, diesel tailpipe emissions being among the worst. Within that shift, we had made a certain choice as to the internal combustion engine within our product. And we had focused that choice based on cost and ease of integration rather than um, its ability to reduce NOx emissions. And we, we developed and sold our first batch of products using that engine. In the meantime, uh, the industry had leapfrogged that engine standard and gone to the latest engine standard so that even a retrofit solution would have to make use of what's called Euro 6 engine standard rather than uh, the Euro 5 that we were previously using. And that has meant we've had to quite radically integrate that new technology into our product, whereas a couple of years ago, it was a pretty safe assumption to assume that Euro 5 would have been an acceptable uh, solution as a retrofit. So that was an example of how legislation has moved very rapidly. It's pivoted essentially from CO2 towards NOx and how it's caused us to have to pivot from uh, basing our technology around a Euro 5 engine towards a Euro 6. Thank you. And the, um, the two things that matter a lot to both entrepreneurs and angel investors are competition and defensibility. Defensibility matters more in terms of a tech product because of uh, the barrier to entry. Hmm. Um, can you just describe where you are on both those 
fronts, competition, defensibility? In terms of competition, we are still the only hybrid retrofit system on the market for buses and it has afforded us quite a unique status in the sense that the market in general is quite crowded now. If you're an operator, you're going to have people trying to sell you new buses, uh, the diesel variety, hybrid, gas, electric, single-decker, double-decker. Uh, if you're in the retrofit space, people might be trying to sell you engine upgrades or exhaust gas after treatments. So there's a lot of competition, but nobody in our specific space. So we're quite fortunate in that sense. I think we've spotted a very good hole in the market, which hasn't yet been filled by anybody else other than us. But you have to remember, even if your product is unique, that doesn't mean customers can't spend their money in other ways. And you're always competing against, in our case, would somebody prefer to buy a new bus, uh, which is a lot more expensive, but they might get a bit more life out of it. Or would they like to go for, for the cheap solution that doesn't necessarily upgrade their bus, doesn't give them all the other benefits our system does, but would help them with their compliance for a lower price. We sit somewhere in the middle. And defensibility is both the time it's taking to develop it and p potentially protecting with patents. Can mm. you talk through those? Yeah, so firstly on, pa on patents, uh, as a small business, I'm very conflicted because uh, if you are a small business and you do have a patent, the only way that patent is of value is if you sue somebody that's infringed upon it and win. And if, uh, take a random company name, um, Mercedes-Benz decided to copy us, and we felt they had infringed on our intellectual property, practically there's very little that we can do. The best two scenarios that could possibly come out of having a patent is maybe they license it from us or they buy us. But both are quite small likelihoods when you consider the cost of patenting to a small business and also particularly patenting before your technology is matured. So we actually did file two patents at the end of 2013. And within about a year or two, our technology had superseded what was in those patents and they were worthless uh, to us anyway. So I would caution companies in patenting too early because I think the value is limited. But when you do become larger, your strategy is clearer, your technology is matured, I think picking the intellectual property that is of most value to the business becomes a lot easier. So two of the patents, the two patents that we filed back in 2013, one was within the battery pack technology, which is still highly relevant to us and our business. Uh, the second was in a clutch mechanism between the engine and generator, which we now do not value at all. And in fact, we're, we're dropping that technology from our product in the next iteration. So uh, it's a good example of how weighting it is possibly better in that case. And the way in which we've um, identified the areas of value and defensibility is done a very detailed intellectual property capture session with our IP attorneys to identify the areas of high value. But, I mean, at this point, we're not talking about an exit, though we're obviously planning on doing that at some point. It definitely should be said that some uh, acquirers of companies do value patents. And, and I had an exit last year where majority of what the value of the business was the patent portfolio. Now, this was a deep tech business in, in sensing technology and had about 10 or so patents. So although it seems wrong, it's expensive, we talk about £50,000 or more per patent, hmm. the, at some point the acquirer may value that strongly. I definitely agree. And, and on balance, I'm on board with, with registered IP. I think there is value in it. I just don't think there's value in doing it too early. 
I think if you can stay in tech stealth mode for a while, which, and there is risks associated with that as well, of course, and patent when your strategy is clearer and your technology is more mature, I think then there's a lot more value in doing it then. Let's, let's talk about pitching then, Alex. Uh, you know, you were quite young when you first raised money with Racing Green. What have you learned? What, what, how has it changed? You're very confident in what you, uh, on, on this podcast generally, but I bet you weren't to start with. No, I wasn't. I remember doing my first public talk as part of Racing Green, and I had sort of three lines printed on a piece of paper, which I could have easily memorised, but I was so petrified about forgetting. And I was holding this piece of paper in my two hands, and I was, I was actually shaking. I was excited, but very nervous at the same time. So I kind of enjoyed it, but it was just felt like I was a bit out of my depth. Since then, I've found a few things that have really helped me become a lot more comfortable, a lot more confident uh, speaking publicly. The first is one of the big things that people get nervous about is forgetting what to say. But in normal day-to-day conversation, when you're talking to somebody and you're telling them a story, you don't forget what you're going to say because the story is somehow formed in your mind. So if you make the pitch a story, some sort of logical timeline that you can walk through in your mind and you'd, that, this is the way you'd talk to a mate where you're walking down the road with, then you'll find it a lot more comfortable. The second thing is um, if you feel like you're blagging it, you will become more nervous. So if you really know your stuff and you've done your research and uh, you're confident you can answer pretty much any question that comes your way, uh, then you will be a lot more relaxed. Bearing in mind, of course, you won't be able to answer every question. And then uh, the really important thing is to not pretend like you do know the answer, but just admit that you don't. And then the third thing is uh, really just try and practice, get yourself out there, particularly if you are starting a business, business promotion is so important. So you should be doing that anyway. And just taking every opportunity that comes your way to talk to people, talk to groups of people. Um, and I think very quickly your, your confidence level improves and your ability to communicate improves as well. Yes, you'll get feedback from the people you pitch to, particularly if it's a smaller group. And you will improve that. That's very noticeable in people I see pitching gradually to a number of groups before and coming back to us. Mm-hmm. What I should also say is having seen, I reckon, 500 to 800 pitches, live pitches, never mind what I've seen on video over the last 10 years, that... Being too confident, being too polished, can actually put people off. Hmm. Being 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 a performer on stage is actually is a substance there. As an angel, would think about that. You could look at it both ways. You could see somebody's being a bit showy um, and masking a lack of depth behind them or depth of business, or you could look at somebody just wanting to put across a really good impression and maybe going a little bit overboard. In the end, though, you have to remember that. Maybe at the beginning of your business, you have time to spend, you know, three weeks working on a pitch, but later on you don't. So you might as well just scrap the idea of having it a perfectly polished performance because it never will be like that in real life. You, you might have a, you know, a couple of hours to prepare if you're lucky. And the second thing is it's all about people in the end and you are trying to create a personal connection with somebody. Say you go down to the pub and you, you have a drink with somebody, you're, you do not know word perfect exactly what you're going to say to them you will relate to them through imperfections in the way in which you talk and you you might start a sentence then go back on another one because you thought something else and so on and you know in in a way a pitch is relating to people but just many people at the same time and so they need to see that human somewhat fallible side to gain that emotional connection because people on the most part correct me if i'm wrong peter will invest more on emotion particularly early stage angel investment than on how 
per- perfectly precise your pitches. Exactly. It's based on gut to a large extent at very, very early stage. Later stage, if you get to the VC and the larger amounts of money where they're managing somebody else's money, that's very different. There are mm-hmm. a lot more processes involved yes. in that. Yeah, for sure. So we're almost finished here, Alex. It's been a really great time. A couple of things I just really want to talk to you about. One is where we're going next, which is real tennis. But first of all, mm-hmm. you went to the Burning Man. I did, yes. Yeah. So Burning Man Festival uh, in August and September of this year, it's a festival of 70,000 people that camp out in the desert of northern Nevada for a week. And basically it's a, it's a mass experimentation of radical survival where there's no water, there's no food, there's no electricity. You have to bring in everything you need to survive for a week. And it is possibly the most surreal, exciting humbling educational experience i've ever had in my life and you found that you could be very very open or had to be very very open with people yes definitely i think there's something about being in this extreme environment everybody's sort of covered in desert dust um and you're sort of very far away from the normal world that the general social structures of what you can say what you can't say just seem to fall by the wayside and you end up having very rapid uh rapidly evolving and genuine interactions with people which i think you need you almost need years to build up that kind of inter uh, that kind of relationship with people in the real world before you're having those kind of conversations and you know you'll probably never meet them again as well it's like sitting next to somebody on an airline when you can be i i I end up being very open about it with somebody knowing that i will never meet them again there there is definitely that possibility although having said that on the first night my girlfriend and i were, were sitting on the swing in the middle of the desert um, and these three people just come and say, oh, can, can we join you? Uh, so I said, of course. Uh, there was a lady on there, and we get talking. She was uh, Danish, but lives in America. And it turns out we lived in the same building in West Ealing at the same time during 2013. Uh, and I never saw her again for the rest of Burning Man. And I, but I do remember seeing her when we were in London. So there are paths that you never know how they might cross in the future. Uh, but the other, one of the other principles of Burning Man is immediacy. So live in the moment. Don't think what, you know, you might see this person in 10 years' time, so you're not going to tell them something today. Just just let it out, I'd say. Right. Yeah, my older son has actually been to Burning Man twice, and I suspect you'll be going back, won't you? Definitely, yeah. yeah. Excellent. And finally, uh, we're just about to go and play. I'm going to introduce you to Real Tennis. Real Tennis is yeah. the precursor to lawn tennis. There are only 40-odd courts in the world. There's only about 4,000 or 5,000 of us to play. We've all got world rankings. we are interesting to see how easily you beat me at that. Well, yeah, I mean, you're, you're a bit more of an expert. I don't even know the rules yet. So straight after this podcast, I'm going to go and read up and see what, see what yeah. I need to do to win. So thank you very much indeed, Alex. It's been really, really interesting. We've learned a huge amount from that. Thank you. And I look forward to the audience joining me again shortly for the next podcast thanks a lot peter